Yeah, well, I might not have been listening. All right. All right. Let's open up in prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for another Sunday where we can meet as a church. We thank you for your word that you've given us uh, to reveal your thoughts to us about how we should live and about what's upcoming in history. Help us this morning, Father, to have a good time of fellowship around your word, that we will be edified by it, not just for head knowledge, but it will make us uh, better Christians, more equipped to uh, deal with the folks you put in our path uh, in this time. In his name, amen. All right, we're continuing from where we left off when I was here last, and we'll just start with a quick review. Uh, we are going through Daniel, collecting all the information from Daniel that'll be necessary to help us understand a, the vision in Revelation 17 about the, the, the beast there with the seven heads and ten horns. So we've gone through a bit of Daniel already, and again, Daniel and the beast of Revelation 17. And so far, we've gotten the data from chapter 2, 7, 8, and 5 as to what is going to be going on in Revelation. Just to remind you, uh, Drew, as Drew often says, uh, if, you get to, if you just start with the book of Revelation and, don't have, and haven't read the other 65 books of the Bible, you're going to have a lot of trouble. If you leave Daniel out of that list, you're still going to have a lot of trouble because Daniel... Uh, is uh, uh, the key to Revelation, uh, as, as far as uh, you know. That's a, that's the title of even one commentary by uh, John Walvoord, and uh, I think it, I think it sums it up correctly. So anyway, just to briefly review what we've gone through so far in the last few hours, Daniel two, the image of Nebuchadnezzar's from, uh, the image from Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue with five parts. We learned from that, uh, from the interpretation of that vision, that that first part, the head of gold, is represented by, uh, it represents rather the the empire of Babylon. Uh, I'd also po point out about the five parts. A lot of times you read in commentaries, even from premillennial, pre-trib, uh, dispensational uh, commentators, that they will consider it four parts because they think of the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay as one. I don't think that's the best way to describe it and as we get more information you'll see why there's a little bit of play in that and at the very end of this series if we ever get there uh, if Jesus comes back sooner than that great we'll talk about a top side uh, but the, the, fi the five I think fits better than the four in Daniel 7 we saw the vision of the four beasts uh, the uh, that green the green one with the horns it's a little hard to do and I, I, I will make my common uh, my common caveat that this looks great on my computer at home I wish I had a filter that said what it looks like here then I'd adjust it but uh, that's the same guy that you'll see over on the uh, on the 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 banner that Drew uses a lot it's referring back to Daniel seven there was the four beasts the lion with eagle's wings, the lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth, the four-headed leopard with wings, and of course that fourth beast there which has uh, ten horns, and then an eleventh one comes up later. Uh, a proper analysis of chapter 7 points to those three other beasts being a contemporary with the fourth beast, and a contemporary in the sense that they are all nations or empires, uh, there are geopolitical entities. Another common thing uh, that is said, again, by, by uh, folks who share our view of prophecy, that these beasts from chapter 7 is really a, is a rehash of what was learned in, out of the vision of the, uh, of the image. 
I don't think that's correct. I presented details uh, to, that show the differences because if, if you remember from Daniel 2, in that vision, the image is hit in the feet and all the parts are destroyed where the, the beast, uh, in the fourth beast in, in Daniel 7 is killed, but the other three survive. So the other three surviving stands in contrast to the other parts of the statue being destroyed and I think that is a big indicator that these are separate uh, that these are separate visions with separate information and that will fit better when we get to Revelation. Um, the hard to see gray bar that's going alongside is uh, indicating that identifying the fourth beast that empire with the fifth section of the statue both being end times powers that are replaced by the kingdom of God. Those two chapters constitute an enormous amount of information that we need for Revelation, but there's still more to get from Daniel. When we went to Daniel 8, we, that was the vision of the, goat, uh, the, the ram and the goat, we found that Medo-Persia and Greece were represented by those two animals, and it talked, uh, if you remember, the ram had two horns, one smaller than the other at first, and the smaller one grew bigger, which is exactly what happened in history for the Medo-Persian Empire. They were two great people groups. They were kind of cousins to each other, if you will. The Medes were dominant at first, and then the Persians became dominant, uh, really kicking things off under Cyrus the Great, which you might remember from other parts of Scripture. He was the guy that uh, sent the Jews, uh, allowed the Jews to go back home from the exile. Um, and then it was Daniel 5 that we saw the end of Babylon and how they were destroyed by Medo-Persia. So not only did we find in 8 that there were these two empires, Medo-Persia and Greece, where Greece beat up Persia, then we found out that Persia beat up Babylon. And when we plug that back into the Daniel 2 information, saying that there is something that's going to succeed Babylon, they start... Uh, linking up with all of this stuff. So we got that. We got all that so far from 2, 7, 8, and 5. And of course, we don't know yet what the legs are, but of course, you know, most, if not all of you, have been around. Uh, you could probably fill in the gaps yourself, but I think this is a, a good exercise just to go through why we believe what we believe, because a lot of times we will get the information, get the conclusions, remember the conclusions, and sometimes forget how we got there. And if we're pressed on, why do you believe what you believe? It's like, wait a minute. So, uh, of course, you can always say to somebody, let me go back and you know, check my stuff and continue the conversation. But as I said last time, uh, as things get crazier in our society, I think we're going to have more opportunities where uh, this information that we learn from prophecy is going to go to a more practical, immediately practical uh, applications. I think I told you last time I... Uh, I had a friend who mentioned something about the coming economic problems, and I knew the way they were talking that they were thinking of the, the third horse of the apocalypse, which is the, is the tribulation. So it's like, okay, I, that was my, that was just one example to me that how what we understand as students of prophecy, we might be called on to say a calm word uh, to them and just line things out and explain to them that God has lined out history. This isn't just academic information. We can take an enormous application just from what we learned here that history is not off its rails. You may take a look on the TV and see all the riots, probably some that have passed and probably some that are coming up in uh, 20 some odd days, if not sooner. 
and say, wow, this is all going crazy. Amer this isn't the America I grew up in or read about in the history books. It's, it's, it's just not right. Uh, don't worry. Anybody who's uh, too worried about it, we're not, Christians are not going to bottom out. God's plan will uh, take place as he predicted, as he laid out. And don't forget, he gave this to the Jews at their lowest point in history, in exile. I mean, that is the exact contrary point to, hey, you're going to get a kingdom someday, Abraham. You know, the, the Abrahamic promise is going to be a, you're going to get a land and there'll be a kingdom and a king and all that. And it's like when you're in, when you're in the situation the Jews are in at this point, that is the furthest thing from where they're at. So there's God telling them, don't worry, I got this. And this data it was, was coming, along, uh, coming along through Daniel during that lowest period in Jewish history. So that is what we've done so far. Now we're going to go to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 has an enormous prophecy in it, one of the greatest prophecies of the Old Testament. Now for our purposes, we're going to get a little bit of information from that, that because we're, remember we're trying to take this into Revelation 17 and figure everything out, and that's going to help us get to the point of uh, filling in those question marks there, is what is the fourth kingdom? So. Uh, so let's, but before we read Daniel 9, there's a little bit of a background that's going to uh, sort out some of this information because, again, 2, 7, 8, and 5 is to remind you that we are grabbing the information at the time it was revealed in history, not in the order it's laid out in the book. Daniel is not written out in strict chronological order. There's date information in there that if you take the time or if you're obsessive compulsive enough, you're going to put it all out. You're going to put it all out in a document and see how it lines up. So you get to see the fruit of that without having to go through it necessarily. But uh, you can have the details if you want. You can just see me later. So, okay, Daniel 9. Background of the chapter. And we're going to get a timeline out of this. Now the first important point on the timeline is... 627 B.C., the start of Jeremiah's ministry. There is something that Jeremiah said which is in the background or the, the context of what we will see in chapter 9 when we read it. 609 B.C. is something mentioned in this series already. This is when the 70-year servitude to Babylon begins for these nations. I have it in quotes because that's taken out of the New American Standard Bible and the passage referred to in Jeremiah 25, 11 and following. These nations. We've often heard about the Jews going into captivity, but it wasn't just about them going into captivity. Uh, the prophecy was made through Jeremiah to all these surrounding nations. You can go into that passage and say, you know, I think, you know, Edom, Ammon, all you guys, Egypt, you're, you know, it's, it's going out for all of you. So, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, it isn't just, about, isn't just about Israel. Now, at 605 B.C., recognized even in the world in general as a major, major battle, and I forgot to mention that in 609, Battle of Haran, uh, that's when the uh, Assyria and Egypt were going up against them. Babylon had taken position in Haran a couple of years or a year or so before. The Assyrians, this was cutting into Assyrian territory. Egypt was a subservient vassal state to Assyria, so it's like, okay, we're together, we're going to go up against Babylon. They go up against them, and they fail. Now, this Haran is the same place that Abraham set forth from into the Promised Land. And that was also the year that Josiah was killed, trying to get in the way of the Egyptians cutting through Israel to go up and help in this battle. So that was the last hurrah for Israel. If you remember, Josiah was a good king. There's a little bit of a revival going on. So there, those are the last great days they had. 
605, Battle of Carchemish. I think it's a little bit to the west of where Haran was. Big battle recognized in the world as a very significant uh, turning point in world history. Uh, the Assyrians, uh, Assyrians and Egyptians lose again. Daniel is taken to Babylon. That's also the year Nebuchadnezzar became king. He was crowned prince up until that point. Here's word that his, uh, that his dad passed, and he had to go back and assume the throne. Even though he's a, you know, he was a, a, a tough commander, you know, there's always court intrigue, so you better go consolidate your position. Uh, I believe it was just at a few months before he actually got back to Babylon, made a pass through uh, Jerusalem. That's when he got Daniel and the other hostages to take back with him, and that's how when Daniel chapter 1 starts. And then also the third point that Jeremiah gives the prophecy of the servitude of the nations to Babylon. The servitude started in 609, but the, that the prophecy was actually delivered in 605. Basically, it's like, hey guys, Nebuchadnezzar beating you all up, taking everything over. Well, guess what? That's going to last for 70 years. And it, it's, to, it's to everybody. So then 603, that's when there was the Nebuchadnezzar having the dream image, Daniel, uh, God providing Daniel with the interpretation of it. So just shortly after that. 586, that's when the temple was destroyed. So sometime after that, there was a little bit of pushback going on in Israel, and Nebuchadnezzar came in, and the Babylonians just cleaned house, tore everything down. There's where your super low part starts for Israelite history. All right, the vision of the four beasts, that was in five, around 553 B.C., towards the end of the Babylonian reigns. That was when the last king was there. So some time had passed in Daniel's, in Daniel's life before getting that. 551, a couple, about 551, a couple of years later, that was when you had the ram and the goat, and you're saying, okay, the ram is Medo-Persia, the goat's Greece, and all that information was starting to come together. In this, just in one lifetime, God was laying out future history, uh, a term we, we like to use with prophecy, future history, getting it all laid out. And now... 539 B.C., that's the fall of Babylon. That was Daniel 5 with the handwriting on the wall. And that night, that's when uh, Belshazzar was killed. So five, if you look at 539 to 609, that's a 70-year period, and that's going to play into Daniel 9. And that's where 530, 538 B.C. is when he get the events and the, and the vision of Daniel 9 come about. So that sets out the framework. So just turn to Daniel 9 and we're going to read it. But before I start, one commentary on this. Uh, I've said often, and I think it's, it's a great thing to remember, that um, Daniel is a book of heavy prophecy, but it also is heavy application. You know, chapter 1, how he you know, didn't, want to, didn't want to eat the king's food, and then properly approached his authorities, and God backed him up on, on his application. Chapter 2, God delivering, uh, God delivering through a really look, what looked like a hopeless situation. You know, chapter 3, the fiery furnace, standing up to, standing up to authority and saying, you know what, God's going to deliver us, but even if he isn't, we're not going to bow down. Very hardcore application. Also, uh, Daniel 6, the lion's den. More hardcore application, same thing like the, uh, like the fiery furnace. You know, I'm going to do what's right in spite of a death, death sentence, God delivers. So, now chapter 9 opens up with a prayer. 
So if you want a good example of prayer and an attitude in prayer, you're going to get it right now. I would also add that it has to do with, it has to do with these things, as you'll see. Um, now I'll, I'll make some I'll make some comments that go along. I'll shut up and let scripture scripture do the talking right now. So Daniel chapter nine verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That's why I made the point of the 70 years there. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord God, our God, who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from, the city, from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all around us. So now... O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. 
Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. All right, that is one heck of a prayer. A lot of things to observe there. We, we've seen so far in the book nothing that Daniel's done wrong. Now, obviously, he's, he's just like us, born with an old sin nature, so there's obviously sins in his life, but the way he's presented in Scripture, he had no major failings. So, and, and I'd like to think that that is a, accurate, a generally good uh, representation of his life. So you notice, he didn't say, hey, you know, I've got it great. I, I'm doing pretty well, but all the, everybody else is a mess. He didn't do that. He, he took, uh, you know, he just treated Israel as a group, which he was part of. He referred back to the law of Moses, what was going on there. The, the, the covenant with Moses, and covenant is just another word for a contract. You know, we get the word covenant, start thinking that's a Bible word or a church word. It's a contract. Made a contract with, made a contract with God. They broke the contract. God had clauses in the contract that if you don't obey, you're eventually going to end up where they are now. So they were in captivity for 70 years because of the, the repeated rejection of God's word. Again, and we saw 609, there was a little revival under Josiah, but you know, the cumulative effect, God's judgment was righteous, of course, and it ended up with the 70-year captivity. You'll notice also Daniel didn't say, hey, you know, God, you promised the 70, 70 years, it's up. You know, I mean, you know, that attitude wasn't there. He remembered why uh, the Jews were in captivity, and so many of them were passed on already. You know, there was a generation of folks born in Babylon, yet he did not throw it under the rug. He did not, you know, uh, exempt himself from it. And, and that's obviously very humble, you know, for him, because he, he is well spoken of in the Bible. There's some passage, I think it was in Ezekiel or something, where I... I probably misquoting where God said, I'm going to do this judgment on such and such a place. And even if Abraham, Noah, or Job, Noah, and Daniel were there, I would judge that place. So Daniel is ranking up there with some of the best believers. And yet, look at his attitude. I'd also say now something that Drew constantly warns us of. There's a, there's a common thing going on in the church at large that uh, folks like to go into verses that talk about the restoration of Israel and like, you know, if you pray and I'll heal, you know, something like that, and I'll heal, heal their land, you know, my people come and heal their land. There's a promise to Israel, okay? We should not appropriate the pro or misappropriate the promises to the nation of Israel to our country. Whatever happens to our country is in God's hands and how it plays into the history of things, it's in his hands. Now, this doesn't mean we don't pray for our country, and this is not a bad prayer. I mean, don't, again, don't, uh, take the promises for Israel and apply them to the United States. But this is certainly a great attitude if you want to pray for our country. Because we have sinned as a people. You know, how long ago did we kick God out of the schools? How long ago uh, have we heard the increased battles against having in God we trust on our, on our currency? And all the other things that you've heard that are just multiplying day after day. So you want to pray for the United States? You know, start here. Uh, there's a lot here to emulate uh, about, about that. So awesome application, jumping out of a book that is dedicated to, to prophecy. So let's, let's continue, though, with, uh, uh, after, the, after the prayer in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in, 
in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the, me the message and gain understanding of the vision. So now we're getting to this super prophecy in Daniel. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be, with, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now you've heard this a lot because it, it, it really touches on a lot of prophecy here because it gets into the tribulation as, as you've heard. But interestingly too, Daniel's praying, hey, uh, could you, you know, time to restore Jerusalem. And he gets way more than he bargained for in his answer. He gets another, he gets another huge installment on prophecy. Now, this is an enormous prophecy I say that because uh, it, uh, if you look at all the dates and compare them to history of these 77s, which uh, 70 weeks, in the Hebrew it's sevens, 77s, and we'll see from talking through it that the best interpretation of that, sevens of, you know, 77s of years, not days, not weeks, not months, but, uh, but years, and we'll see, that in a, we'll see that in a little bit. Uh, and there are people who've worked out the dates. We have enough information from history and archaeology, say when all these things started, and we'll see that in a minute, and you can, you can get in history uh, to the day uh, this prophecy was fulfilled to the day when Messiah the Prince will come is the triumphal entry. So, I mean, to the day, factoring in leap years and things like that. There was a guy who, uh, the first guy who did it, who worked on it was... Uh, Sir Robert Anderson, I think that's what his name was, um, and he he did uh, he was also an inspector uh, on the uh, Jack the Ripper case. Just to let you know how old that is, he was off by one year because there was some archaeological evidence that later came to light that pushed everything ahead a year. And again, we'll see those dates in a minute. So that's a serious prophecy. Daniel is several centuries before Christ shows up. And you get to the day, I mean, imagine like predicting the winner of the Super Bowl, you know, hundreds of years from now. Or, or the winner of some yet uncreated game, you know, hundreds of years from now. That, that's an amazing prophecy. And it's so, the, the prophecies in Daniel, this one and actually and, and others that we'll talk about, are so accurate that uh, scoffers would just say, oh, who, who don't believe in prophecy, like, oh, oh, this was just written after the fact. It's like... They're attesting to the accuracy of these things because the only defense they can come up with is written after the fact. So, 
But this, this is how, I, in my opinion, this stands uh, as the supreme pre-Christ, um, pre-Christ prophecy due to, its, due to its accuracy. Anyway, um, so let's go to, let's start analyzing, though, the, the data that we can get out of the, the, the core prophecy here in Daniel 9, 24, 27. Okay, well, another little timeline going on here. Uh, March 5th, 444 B.C., Artaxerxes issues the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, starting the 70 weeks of years, and that goes back to the prophecy here in verse, um, let's see, 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah... The, uh, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62. Seven plus 62 is 69. Okay, and so it's it's not like there's it's they're really uh, you know two chunks. The and this is the decree that you read about in Nehemiah. So as you take the Old Testament, uh, the latter part of the Old Testament, you know from the exile on together, you'll start to they're not just a random collection of books. They are. Uh, the fulfillment, a lot, of, a lot of them are dedicated to the fulfillment of these prophecies that go on. Nehemiah, that, he was right there. That was going on in Nehemiah's day. Now, whoops, a little extra click there. And as I was just saying, the end of those 69 weeks, the 7 plus the 62 to the very day, March 30th, 33 AD, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, quote, Messiah the Prince, until Messiah the Prince. He was presenting himself. Well, what was the prophecy of Zechariah? He's going to come, he's lowly and humble, riding on a, you know, a colt, the fall of an ass. So there it is. That's what they were talking about. Why were people all excited when he showed up? You know, there's enough folks around that knew this prophecy. It wasn't just some dude riding on a little donkey. What's the big deal? That happens all the time. No, they, th- that's what this was about. He was coming in. His, this was the this was the prophesied king. Here he is fulfilling that prophecy. And again, this is to the day. This wasn't some round off to the nearest decade, or even to the nearest year. This is documented from history. It's worked out. If anybody wants to see that, you can see me. I can send you a, a couple of references. One link is to uh, what Andy Woods does down at Sugarland Bible Church. There's a there's a document online that you can click into. He's got it all worked out. It's a little bit of it's a little bit of math uh, that you don't have to do, thankfully, because someone else. I was putting off doing this for years because it's like I I just went through it and was off by four days and said I am not dealing with leap years in a BC setting. That's just gonna mess your mind up. So, so I I finally got around to doing it, and you know it, it's true. So. There we are. So that and that little white thing is just to indicate this is not to scale. There's hundreds of years obviously going on between those two. So continuing with the timeline. Okay, days later, obviously within the week, you know, within the week, Jesus is crucified, and that's the phrase. Then after he is cut off. This is after the 69th. And you'll see why that's important in a minute. Now there was the next and then there was the next statement. Uh, the, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know from history that happened in 70 AD, 37 years later. Okay, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, if you're doing the math, you know, you got your 70 weeks of years, uh, so you got your uh, 469 done, you know, you need 470, 470 years, well, there's seven years left. 
well, wait a minute, that's 37 years later. Where's this last seven years? Where's that go? It, 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 it didn't, you know, this happened after those seven years. How do we figure that? How does this all line out? Because afterwards, you see that the week of the tribulation begins, the seventh one that we refer to as tribulation, the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come. Now, the only conclusion, there's that other white thing saying, there's, you know, there's centuries there. The only conclusion you can come to to fit all the biblical data is that there is a gap between week 69 and 70. There is no other way around it. I was reading up on amillennials who you know, don't believe in the same way of prophecy that we have, and they just have a, well, you know, the seven years is this and the 490 is that. I just, for the first time, I just read it this morning real quickly, so I can't rattle it back off to you, but they don't really, they can't plug all the biblical data into something that fits. This is the only thing that fits. And we will have more information that shows how all of this stuff fits, but we are in a gap of time. It's almost like, uh, the easiest way to think about it from an analogy is uh, like, a, like a sporting event, you know. Uh, the, the, how long is a game? It's 60 minutes. But is it 60 minutes of airtime? No. You've got timeouts, and this is kind of like a this is kind of like a timeout. You know, the clock is not running. There's 407, uh, 490 years total, and the clock has stopped on that 490 years. History's still moving, and even and there was even prophecy like the the 78th AD uh, event was prophesied, but it happened during that timeout period of the of the rolling of the rolling out of that time. So there it, that's, that is, uh, that's the timeline according to that prophecy. And just to, oh wait, and there we go. One more thing, a little tidbit to pick up along the way. You may have heard that the kingdom of the Antichrist that's going to be in the tribulation is referred to as the revived Roman Empire. And the, one of the reasons it gets that name is because it's referring to the people of the prince who is to come, the Romans, an empire from the past, yet the prince who is to come is in the future, there's somehow an association between the two of them. Which, if you think back to the Daniel statue, the five sections, the last two is legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. So you got iron and iron in both of them. They're separate, but they're related. So I can understand why someone would like to think of the statue as being in four parts and not five. It's really five, but there is a relationship. And how the Romans are related to the Antichrist later on, We'll find out, maybe not here, you know, we'll be watching from a safe distance, uh, but um, yay pre-trib rapture. Um, but anyway, so that's where, that's one of the places where this term comes from. Of course, the iron, you know, the iron and the iron clay, that would be the other one. So those two together, we just use that label. That's not a label from scripture, but it's a nice shorthand for uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist or the future kingdom or whatever. That's just, uh, that you might even see it, and you will soon, uh, even as, a, uh, as a, an acronym, an RRE, you'll see it in prophetic scripture. I mean, I mean prophetic books about uh, scripture. So there, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, uh, uh, the, the outline of the, uh, of the prophecy. And just to, just to look at it in shorthand, you know, just to remember this, the people of Rome the prince who is to come, the future kingdom. Again, there is a, there is a connection across, even, even though it's across millennia, they are related to one another. And um, so what, wh how is this helping us with Revelation 17? You know, we are looking for that last, uh, you know, that last piece of the puzzle on the, on, the, you know, on the legs, and 
it seems like the uh, from this information seems very strongly. I think it, saying seems is kind of a weak way to put it. Rome is the successor to Greece, and we could have even really uh, concluded that just from looking at history. Uh, and we'll see a little bit more on that uh, as we go into the into the next hour uh, when we you know tackle Daniel 10 through 12. So let me. But there's a few other things to to get from. Daniel 9 since we're since we're here so okay miscellaneous points from Daniel 9 and oh and before yeah and I, this is all in your printout but I really I really forgot to to go over the brief summary of the prophecy we've touched on that uh, we've also touched on the key points we've touched on the gap this gap can be seen looking carefully in the passage right there which we want we've gone over and we've also gone over during the gap the people the prince to come uh, destroy the city and the sanctuary. Um, now we are we are going to uh, just bring up a couple of more points, though, while we're here to deal with just a little side points. Uh oh. There we go. Rome is the clear successor to Greece. Again, we'll see a little bit more of that next hour. But even if you have just a little bit of history, you know, you know, the Greeks were there for a while, and then we had, if you remember from the goat, where they had the one horn under representing Alexander the Great, and then the four horns representing the kingdoms that uh, came out of his empire. They kind of broke up into four kingdoms inside of his empire. Uh, the Romans eventually just kind of uh, gobbled a lot of that up. Now, Jerusalem, but, but remember, though, we were reading here, though, what is this stuff about a flood? You know, uh, let's see. The people, uh, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. I like, you know, history students like, no, they they surrounded the city and then they tore everything down. There was no flood. Nobody flooded anything. There was no waterworks going on. I mean, we had Babylon being overthrown by Medo-Persia by them diverting the river away. That was the closest thing anybody was doing about a flood with water. What? 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 What is this? And. Uh, the Bible, of course, answers its own question. But a flood has been used as a figure of speech for an invading army, Isaiah 8-7. So let's, let's just go over there just to prove the point. I mean, not that this really matters for what we're trying to do with Revelation 17, but since we're here, you know, it's, it's sometimes this is glossed over, but we have to prepare ourselves for folks who are scoffers or maybe seekers who have questions. If you can't answer a question, sometimes that throws people. There's a lot of folks are not thrown by little questions like this, but some people are. We're, we're, there's, we're, all sorts of, we're all different people. We all have different weaknesses, and some people can get thrown by something as little as this. It's like, what are you doing? There was no flood. Romans didn't do, any, didn't do anything. So Dan, um, Isaiah 8, 7. I'm going to just back up a few, uh, a few verses to get, if I can even turn this page. Okay, starting at verse 5, and this is a, a prophecy against, uh, against the northern kingdom of Israel. And again, the Lord spoke to me saying, further saying, insomuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, uh, this is foreign powers. Now, therefore, the Lord is about to, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, 
even the king of Assyria and all his glory. This is poetry here. Even if you have your, in my Bible here, it's even set in verse. It's a, it's a poetic thing here. So it's like, you know, you've rejected the waters of Shiloh, you know, like the where you should have been, what you should have been doing, God and his covenant. You've rejected the waters of Shiloh. I'm going to send you the waters of the Euphrates, which is the Assyrians. That's where the Assyrians are from. A little, little poetry here. How, 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 that's almost a little more ominous to get a a, the, you know, a judgment in poetry. It's like a little bit of a, a little bit of a twist there. God's taking a little extra step here to just kind of po, po I don't know, poetic justice maybe. So even so, I'm going to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go up over all its banks, and then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will even reach to the neck. You know, there's a, it's like, uh-oh. You know, the, the flood's here. You're on your toes, right? And, it, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So the, God mixed metaphors. He suddenly went from waters to a bird thing. So I don't feel so bad when I mix metaphors anymore. I got some good, you know, so, so no, I, I get called on that sometimes. It's like, so I should really go back to this passage and say, hey, I've, I've, I'm in good company if I mix my metaphors. But there is an example. It just flows poetically. It's like, it, it's a flood. I'm going to flood you guys. But he's talking about an invading army. So, and that's what happened to the Jews when the Romans came in. They surrounded it. They tore it down brick by brick. It was, it was wiped out. It was almost like a flood came through and just wiped everything out. So, and there's a, a couple other verses that also establish this. Daniel, which we'll, we'll touch more, Daniel 11, which we'll touch more on next hour, but 11, 22 to 26, so we'll go over there. Now, Daniel 11, very interesting, a very interesting chapter. This is about a lot of prophecy uh, that has already been fulfilled in history. So, 22 to 26. And the overflowing, uh, and now uh, the setting of this is there's this long chapter about these two of the successor na uh, nations of the, of the Greeks. When I told you the Greeks were broken up into four parts, two of the parts, one referred to as the king of the north, which is the Seleucid Empire, north, they're north of Israel, and the king of the south, Egypt, the Ptolemaic em uh, Empire nation. They were always going back and forth with each other, and Israel was caught in the middle. So one time the, the, the southern part held them, and then the rest of the northern held them, and they were just kind of getting you know, trampled on. So this is just one of the excerpts from all the history that took place over the centuries uh, involving that. And the overflowing forces will be flooded, aw flooded away before him and shattered, and also the Prince of the Covenant. And, and then it goes down to 26. I'll just skip there. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. So it, it, it's, just a, it's just a metaphor for uh, moving armies. Now, I would say this, and you know, uh, also, if you remember from Revelation 12, and it talks about the dragon going after the woman in the wilderness to destroy her with a flood, I would think that these verses uh, at least make a case for the fulfillment of that future prophecy of Satan trying to destroy the Israelites with a flood that is, uh, is going to refer to some future military action. Now, it could be a literal flood. I don't know. I'm not going to put a flag in that hill and, say, and defend it to the death, but I, I'm just suggesting that uh, when you read Revelation 12, you might think back to these verses and say, huh, I wonder how that's going to be fulfilled literally you know, when, when the time comes, which is hopefully not long from now. So, All right, got a minute left. 
I'll take a breath. Does anybody have any questions at all? Want me to back up on anything? Because we need all of this for next hour. So if you if you, if you have any question and you don't have it answered now, you'll be totally lost. Nick, no, no, just kidding, just kidding. All right. Um, but anyway, I'll take the final. I'll, I'll, then I'll just make the final point and close in prayer. Together, all these points that we've seen show that the Romans are not only associated with their own empire, but with another uh, kingdom future to Rome. And as we've seen, you know that kingdom. Uh, you might mind already turn to that green beast with all the horns on there, and that would be a proper place to turn your mind. Because, and we'll see a little bit, we'll see a little bit more about uh, next hour, which will be the last bits of information we need from Daniel before going into Revelation. So, anyway, thank you. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've laid out history for us. You've given us many details, enough details to to point to people uh, who are scoffing or, or questioning and saying, "Yeah, this has been said before." We have things that have been fulfilled, and because of your past fulfillments, we have every reason to believe, or any fair person should, uh, should believe, that these things will come to pass. Help us, Father, to be good stewards of this information and good ambassadors to a world that needs to hear these things. In his name, amen.